Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In, a program series of the Knox County Public Library. This event is a partnership of the Friends and Knox County Public Library. Today, we are happy to welcome Dr. Mark McGrail, Director of Addiction Medicine for Cherokee Health Systems. After completing his undergraduate and medical degrees in Maryland, McGrail performed a residency at Eisenhower Army Medical Center and fellowship at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Dr. McGrail is board certified in both family medicine and addiction medicine. He will discuss dope sick, dealers, doctors, and the drug company that addicted America by Beth Macy. We want to give a warm welcome to Dr. Mark McGrail. Thank you. All right, well, thank you for that kind introduction and for uh, letting me come in and steal a few minutes of your day today. When I when I picked this book, it was funny. I'd gotten the book when I had an opportunity to meet Beth Macy at an addiction medicine meeting and hadn't read it when I bought it and met her, and she signed it, and uh, I could not understand for the life of me why she signed her book with a math equation. And she signed it 70 times 7. So hopefully some of you recognize that uh, from the story. I, I finally got it, you know, once I read the book. But, yeah, that's, uh, it was very uh, appropriate to my practice here. And sometimes it feels like it takes 70 times 7 uh, efforts and, and, and chances and, and treatment uh, opportunities. But if that's what it takes, that's what we do. So let's set the stage with some numbers and some definitions that aren't in the book, but I thought were appropriate for us to kind of have a common ground and how we're going to uh, discuss the, the issues of addiction that are in the book. Every year, the federal government performs a survey called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. 2017 is the last year for which we have data. And in that year, there were 30 million people ages 12 and older, who had used an illicit substance in the past 30 days. So 30 million. That's illicit substance. That's not tobacco. That's not alcohol. So that equates to about 1 in 10. So just think about that when you're walking down the street. Now, in that same survey, they discovered that there were 20 million people with a substance use disorder. So again, now that does include alcohol. does not include tobacco but includes alcohol. So 20 million, 12 and older. Again, that's about 1 in 14 people have an addiction. You know, so this, this book couldn't be more timely uh, with what we're seeing in this country. I think it's also important to understand addiction and what that means when we talk about addiction. The, the definition I like to use and, and subscribe to is one from the American Society of Addiction Medicine that they crafted in 2014. And just to kind of paraphrase it, it describes addiction as a primary chronic disease. Primary, meaning it is a disease, it's its own disease. It's not secondary to being weak or having a character defect or a moral failing as addiction and alcoholism have been looked at for centuries. It's a primary chronic disease with characteristic findings 
It has a progressive, relapsing, remitting course. So sometimes people do well with their disease. Sometimes they don't do so well. And then if left untreated, can result in disability and, as we all know, too unfortunately, death. So I think that's a great way to kind of sum it up and really present addiction as a disease, as this book talks about frequently throughout the stories, that it is a disease. It's not just that the person's weak or they're just a bad person. We could talk the same thing in diabetes. Most cases of diabetes in this country are related to behaviors. People gain too much weight and don't exercise and eat the wrong foods. Most adult onset diabetes, that's the classic development. So you could say, well, they're just bad people. If they just ate right and exercised, they'd be okay. But we don't do that. We recognize it is a disease and we treat it as such. We need to think of addiction the same way. And then finally, how do we diagnose it? So we kind of know what it is, but how do you diagnose it? You know, you diagnose diabetes with blood sugars and, and doing other lab tests. Well, we have some diagnostic criteria for diagnosing a substance use disorder. Most notably, those are things like inability to stop using, unsuccessful attempts to cut down, using more than planned or for longer than planned, cravings, using despite consequences. The two final criteria on the 11 criteria list are tolerance and dependence. Those are critical to understanding, particularly opioids. And as we talk about the story, you'll, the, the characters that she relates have all suffered from probably most, if not all, the diagnostic criteria, but also about tolerance and dependence, because that's kind of at the heart of the discussion about the pharmaceutical companies. We could take anybody in this room And within a week or two of daily opioid use, you would meet two of the criteria for opioid addiction, tolerance and dependence. Because if you suddenly stopped it after two weeks, you would probably get sick for most people. And after two weeks, you wouldn't get the same pain relief. So you've developed tolerance. You would need more of the drug to get the same relief. And when you look at what the pharmaceutical company talked about, and in particular their lead physician for OxyContin saying, well, if somebody takes it as prescribed, there's a one-half to one percent chance of developing an addiction. Just the biology of the medicine alone, people won't take it as prescribed because they will develop tolerance and dependence. So he was clearly someone who didn't understand addiction and didn't understand the neurobiology of opioids. So with that as an introduction, let's talk about the book. I think this is a great story. It does a nice job of bringing together that perfect storm. Uh, And she even actually uses that term, perfect storm, that sort of confluence of factors from the individual to the family to the community to institutions in our society all coming together to foster and perpetuate, in many cases, the opioid epidemic. And the sad fact is that If we spend the whole hour here, across this country, in the next hour, five people will die from opioid addiction. To bring that home a little bit, Knoxville, last year in Knoxville and Knox County, 292 opioid overdose deaths. That's over 20% of the entire state's total, just here. So far this year, as of two days ago when I looked at the numbers, we were at 137. I guess that's actually a good news story because that would put us on track for less than 292, but that's still 137 too many. You know, I think while she writes this story about, 
you know, where she works and lives in Roanoke and that western part of Virginia and the I-81 corridor. As I go through this and relate this to my practice here, if you just crossed off Roanoke and put Knoxville or put I-40 instead of I-81, this is the story of East Tennessee. So what I thought we'd do first, uh, what I'd like to do first is just talk about the drug. A lot of people don't understand the issue with opioids and why Why do you keep using them? Like with any drug of abuse, what happens? It is sometimes difficult to understand. And just sort of having an understanding of the way the brain works can help you kind of think through that. Ah, okay, I can, I can see that now when we talk about a patient with addiction. So all the drugs of abuse, I don't care what it is, quite frankly, they're all fun. That's how they start. If somebody used something and it was hideous the first time you used it, you're probably not going to use it again. But they all start out fun. All my patients tell me that. They start out getting high. And as you saw through the book, many of the, the addicted patients talked about, well, it's no longer about getting high. It's about what the title of the book is, not being dope sick. Very few of my patients still get high. They're just using to live. Very briefly on the neurobiology, you know, our brains are hardwired for pleasure. There are a lot of natural rewards that we experience. It's what's kept our species alive for as long as it has been. You know, natural rewards like food. Most of us feel good after a good meal, kind of get that uh, feel-good feeling, kind of calm, and you want to sit back and, and just enjoy the fact that you had a good meal. Food is a natural reward. Sex is a natural reward. Of course, without it, none of us would be here. So there are natural rewards in the brain. But if you think about those natural rewards, let's just say that they stimulate our reward center, let's say uh, five units of stimulation. Now let's take a substance of abuse. Let's take opioids. For the person who is genetically and otherwise predisposed to an addiction with opioids, that stimulation is 100 units of pleasure. So boy, if I could get 100 units of pleasure, it's a lot better than five. So it's reinforcing, kind of perpetuates the substance use. Even worse, and she talks a little bit about it and when she alludes to the fact that uh, the opioid crisis has started to bring out other drugs of abuse, maybe some we hadn't seen in a little while, uh, in particular the stimulants, and in particular meth. If opioids are 100 units of pleasure, meth is 500 has a very, very powerful, very reward-stimulating effect on the brain. Most of my patients use it to just treat their opioid sickness, their dope sick, but we also have several just what I call pure meth addicts. Now, the good news is not everybody's brain is hardwired like that for the substances. So if you think about it, millions of people in this country can take an opioid after a surgery and take the prescribed dose and be done with it. Problem is the folks who can't do that, the ones whose genetics have predisposed them to get that extra 500 units or 100 units of reward from the substance. I hear it all the time when someone comes into my office and they'll tell me, yeah, the first time I took one, I liked it. And that was it. Some of them are literally addicted from day one. Again, thankfully, most brains don't do that, but at least in this country, there are 20 million brains that suffer from addiction. You know, I think when we look at kind of the effect and what a drug of abuse, and in this case opioids, does to the brain, 
you know, when you think about it from a neurochemical standpoint, it's really not that hard to understand why someone would keep using. And then when you consider they make that transition from getting high in the pleasure to now just using not to be dope sick, and the, the, uh, the old saying about opioid withdrawal is, it won't kill you, but you wish it would. That's legit. <laughs> I, my patients will do anything to avoid getting dope sick. The book does a nice quick review of the opioid history from the synthesis of morphine in the early 1800s out of the poppy plant up through the synthesis of heroin, the effects on soldiers in the Civil War with soldiers' disease. And then even 100 years ago in this country, heroin was over the counter. Go to Walgreens and buy your heroin. Thankfully, that's no longer the case. But we've certainly had some uh, evolutions of uh, the country's approach to opioids. But what was interesting, when you look through all of those points in history, there was somebody sounding the alarm. Even the guy who sent you identified morphine out of the poppy plant said, yeah, I don't think this is a good idea <laughs> to use this because of its negative effects. And then you see those warnings throughout, but we really, as a healthcare system and as a society, didn't pay too much attention, unfortunately. Didn't heed those warnings. Kind of learning some lessons too late, I think, right now. The next big theme I wanted to hit is our culture. You know, I was an early career family physician in the mid-90s, and if you remember from the book, that's about the time that the Joint Commission, which is the organization that accredits hospitals in the entire country, that's when they started to come out with this pain is the fifth vital sign. Not only did we check your temperature, your blood pressure, your respiratory rate, and your heart rate, now we had to assess your pain in a hospital. And if we didn't do that, you didn't get accredited. Not only did you have to assess pain, you had to assess your intervention to address the pain. And between that and, oh, by the way, that also was the same time that OxyContin came on board. What a great way to help meet those Joint Commission inspectors' requirements. What a better way than a nice, powerful opiate. So when I go back and reassess your pain, it's zero now. I just, quite frankly, met that, checked that box on my inspection sheet. So there's two big variables, pressure on hospitals, pressures on providers, the appearance of this, uh, this medication in particular, and then our culture. I don't mean to offend anybody, but we have a culture that expects to be pain-free. That is our U.S. expectation. You may have gathered that I had some time in the military, and you know when I retired a few years ago, I'd been to a lot of countries, and I can tell you there's nowhere... <laughs> Uh, that I've been that's like here in, in what our society expects as far as the level of tolerable discomfort or pain that should be expected. We live in a great place. We've got a lot of nice things. We have a relatively easy lifestyle. When I was in Afghanistan, access to health care was defined as a day's walk. Now it's five minutes, and I better see my doctor in this country. So we just have a different set of expectations, but one of those, unfortunately, was a lot of people felt they should be pain-free. I think as much as we'd like to think that physicians and other healthcare providers should be totally unbiased by that and practice by the evidence and strictly be uninfluenced by outside factors, that wasn't the reality. It was extremely common for the sprained ankle to get 30 days' worth of hydrocodone or oxycodone or some sort of narcotic. Because for one, they are good pain medicines. They do 
treat pain. Not that that kind of pain needed it, but there were also those influences from the Joint Commission, from the pharmaceutical companies, from our culture, telling us eliminate pain. And then let's throw in the fact that now someone had the great idea that we should include pain in patient satisfaction surveys. Let's ask patients how their pain is, and would they come back to this hospital? Are they going to keep that hospital or that provider in business because they did a great job managing my pain, or they didn't do such a good job? Again, I'd like to think that we could have been non-biased by that as providers, but the reality was we weren't. Plus, let me just give you 30 days' worth, and you don't have to come back. In 30 days, you're not going to take up another appointment or the mentality of here, here's your prescription, get out of my ER kind of thing. Unfortunately, those, those things happened. All of those things put together start to kind of snowball. Clearly, our culture plays a big part of it. It's not all bad, though. I'm probably sounding very, <laughs> very pessimistic, but it's not all bad. We're learning some of our lessons. Changes in prescribing guidelines, even Tennessee, you know, Tennessee with their laws restricting the amount of opioids that can be prescribed on a first visit uh, and postoperatively. Those things are all making a change. But I think as far as a culture, what it really comes down to is the community. Uh, If you remember uh, Sue Ella Kobach from the book, I think she had probably the most powerful quote in the entire book when she said, the answer is always community. If we as a community and culture reinforce some of the concepts that there should be no pain, there should be no discomfort, I need to get what I want when I want it, that kind of thing, then we're going to perpetuate some of that. But we have some opportunities to influence those things. When we read the book, we like to think that, or may think that some of the big institutional organizational things had the most impact on what Beth Macy was encountering, you know, changes in the pharmaceutical companies advertising and some of their withdrawing some of the medications and government efforts and giving money for programs. I think when I read this, the most powerful impacts were the individuals, the ginger mum powers who spent hours and days and weeks and months of her time taking phone calls and having people visit her jewelry store who were suffering from the same thing her family was. And just having that individual approach, that's you know the root of the community. Uh, I think that was really where the power was in addressing this for them. And I see that in my clinic. Over half of the patients I see are referred by other patients or by someone in recovery. They're not going to the health department and being told to come to me. They're, it's themselves, it's their peers who send them. The individual is, and the power of that's an important lesson from this book. Just finally about the issue of community, Nancy Campbell, the historian that Beth Macy quotes in here, I think her quote here is just spot on. If you want to keep people away from drugs and drug-related crime, you have to have rewarding activities. Replace the drug. Feel better up here from something other than a drug. And she goes on, it's work, it's play, it's an emphasis on the kind of activities and relationships that people build their lives around. That's critical. The patients who do the best in our program here in town are the ones who get jobs, whose families no longer shun them, who reconnect to get custody of their kids back, Those are the ones who do the best because they start to build this community. Even if it's their little tiny community, they build that back. 
So again, I, like I said, I agree with Suella. The answer is always community. So any thoughts on that? What, what role would marijuana, alcohol, and some of the other more recreational drugs have as a gateway into opioids and other highly addictive drugs? That gateway issue, you know, very controversial. It's thrown around a lot. Uh, sometimes it's legitimate, sometimes it's not. If we look at the data, when I told you that 30 million people had used an illicit substance in the past 30 days, about 26, 27 million of that's marijuana. But of the 20 million who have a substance use disorder, 16 million of that's alcohol. So only 4 million illicit substance use disorders, yet 27 million people use marijuana. So is it a gateway? For most people, no. Just like, you know, like I said with the opiates, most people can take an opioid in this country. Take it as prescribed, use it for their surgical pain, and be done with it. It wasn't a gateway to anything else, to include an addiction. And and I think the same way of marijuana. Frankly, most people can use it, and it develops into nothing else. I'm not saying go out and smoke weed, but most people can. As a transition drug, if you will, for people who are predisposed to addiction, I see that regularly. I don't know if I would call it a gateway because I think for most of these folks, particularly the genetic influence, I have out of the 850 patients we've seen in our clinic, maybe 10 without a family history of addiction. It's a powerful, powerful influence. So whether I wouldn't necessarily call marijuana a gateway, but I would say it's part of the progression of their addiction. But most of them do start with marijuana. I've had patients, the youngest I've had is a four-year-old whose parents decided giving her marijuana was a good idea when she was four because it calmed her down. And she had been using for, I saw her and she was in her late 20s. And she'd been using ever since. So maybe not necessarily a gateway, but certainly part of the progression, same with alcohol, because it's obviously you can, it's everywhere. Uh, and those are things I typically see in the addiction population. Yeah, it's a good conversation to have, you know, as we look at particularly now all the states legalizing marijuana and what impact that may have. Because if you, the genetic risk for addiction is generally considered to be about 50%. So that means there's another 50% of non-genetic factors that play into it. So if you'd never exposed the person who's got the genetic predisposition to any substance use at all, they're not going to develop an addiction. And that includes marijuana and alcohol. Um, I have a comment and a question. The comment is, uh, my son just went through a dental surgery and uh, he was prescribed narcotic to relieve the pain. And as a parent, I kept a tab on the 18 tablets and he came out off it okay. So I was able to return those 18 back to Walgreens. So I think uh, we have seen, studies have shown that people just have narcotics lying around in their medicine cabinet Mm -hmm. and uh, somebody else, uh, you know, gets to use those. So that's one comment. The question is, with the recent case of Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the Sackler family, I mean, most of these issues, you know, they have a medicine psychiatric solution, but they also have a legislative solution. So in your opinion, what are the proposed legislation 
solutions that is on the table or what other countries are doing to confront this problem? As far as your comment, yes, absolutely. You know, if when you look at the data, people who get opioids or other illicit substances, particularly stimulants like Adderall, Ritalin, things people keep on their shelves and that people can abuse, over half get them from family and friends, and that's the medicine cabinet. I know just, uh, what was it, a week ago that Channel 10 did one of their drug take-backs, another 600 pounds of medication. I mean, it's great that people are doing that and that you did that. That's great, because if we can eliminate part of the source, that's, in my mind, part of the solution. But as far as, you know, kind of legislating and looking at uh, what we can do from that side of the House, yeah, definitely, like your son experienced there, you know, we've put legislation into place to reduce prescriptions and reduce amount of prescriptions, days of prescription. We, in this state, as in, I think, 49 of the 50 states, uh, require providers and pharmacies to check what's called the Controlled Substance Monitoring Database also known as a prescription drug monitoring program. So in Tennessee, it's called the CSMD, Controlled Substance Monitoring Database, into which every controlled substance goes when it's dispensed to include opiates, stimulants, some other handful of medicines, um, but all controlled substances. So I can see if a patient comes to me complaining of of a pain and wants an opioid, I can look in there, oh, you were just at Dr. So-and-so's yesterday and got 20 days worth, and now you're seeing me today. That's been very effective at helping to reduce doctor shopping and sort of that pill mill phenomenon that we saw for so many years as part of the opioid epidemic. If you remember reading in the book, this is a far end of the spectrum legislative solution, but look at what Portugal did and decriminalized everything. They now have the lowest drug use rate in Europe. Not that I'm saying we should decriminalize marijuana or decriminalize heroin and meth, but you got we, we have to think outside the box on this because clearly what we've done isn't necessarily working. Some things have an effect, but if we really want to stop this, we got to think outside the box. And that would be way out, might be way outside the box for this country, but it's something to look at. Yes, sir. You mentioned that community was a, one of the solutions to the problem as to how they look at drug addiction. But it is, is it also a part of the problem? Uh, are there socioeconomic reasons why some communities have more drug addiction than others? Do uh, lower income people have higher drug addiction? Yeah, I didn't kind of go into some of my notes here, but the American Society of Addiction Medicine uses six criteria to assess when we try to decide what is an appropriate treatment for someone with addiction. One of those elements is what's called the recovery environment. And we know that certain things in a person's environment are very protective against addiction or supportive of, once someone is addicted, of being in recovery, of getting treatment, of doing well with that. Uh, And those are a lot of those socioeconomic things that you talk about. And, And like was in this one quote, it's work, it's finances, it's having a safe, secure place to live, it's having family, it's having supportive friends, it's all those environmental things that are so critical. And you know, every patient in our clinic meets with one of our case managers whose job it is to address those things. It's a very different story if I'm treating a patient who's going to go back home where nobody in the home uses, and it's a house that's 
paid for or you know or someone's making payments and it's a secure place than the person who's going to go back and live on the street it's a very different environment often a very different outcome unfortunately in treatment so yeah that plays a critical role it does play a role in treatment but it plays a role in the patient getting there if you remember she uses the word a drawer if you remember that she talked about one patient whose goal was to be a drawer d-r-a-w-e-r and she's like what's that and that's draw a disability check i have patients now in their 20s and 30s who literally tell me that's their plan to get on disability everybody in their family is on disability unfortunately half of them are using something you know because they don't have some of those protective effects there's clearly the genetic risk when it's in the family like that but they don't have some of those protective effects of being able to go to a job earn a living have a community of work people that are supportive and sober but their goal is to be a drawer the issue of is it the rich kids is it the poor kids i thought it was interesting one study i read noted that while tobacco use starts at an earlier age in kids with a lower socioeconomic status, it's actually the rich kids who start alcohol and marijuana sooner. Didn't go into the reasons, probably because they can afford those things, but I thought that was interesting. And, you know, and for then, again, for those who are predisposed to addiction, if they're starting those things at an early age, the trajectory is not often good. How long can people function on opioids? I mean, if they, that man that was 60 that did heroin all those years, was he functional? Did he work? He was on disability. <laughs> Does everyone get on disability with this? Not everyone. Be? Not everyone. I mean, people function for decades, and I have some who, you know, it's sort of the old classic picture of the functional alcoholic. Gets up, has a beer, goes to work, comes home, drinks 30 beers does it every day there are people for whom they can still do the things that they need to do to put food on the table and you know otherwise keep life as we know it going the majority don't do well at that can you give us just a quick rundown of how you do treat someone who comes and wants to be treated sure well one we tell them there's nothing you can tell us that's going to have any effect on you being with us or not because so many people go to programs. I like uh, Beth Macy writes in there. Yeah, denying opioid addicted participants medicine is akin to denying diabetics their insulin on the grounds that they're fat. I thought that was very powerful because a lot of my patients come in with the past experience of if I show up to a treatment program and I'm dirty, in other words, they're still using you won't let me in. Again, that's like telling a diabetic, if you show up with a high blood sugar, I'm not going to treat you. That's who needs the treatment the most. So we set first just some general ground rules that, look, if you're not dirty, why are you here? <laughs> you know, If you're not using why you're here, we expect everybody who walks in the door to be using so that they have that expectation that, okay, this is a place for me where I can be honest. And then we hope that honestly translates into them telling us what they're using extremely rare to be using just one substance. So once we kind of figure out what they're using and do the urine drug screening, we then triage the risk. Like I said, opioid withdrawal will make you feel like you want to die, but you won't. Benzodiazepine, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin. So benzodiazepine withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal will kill you. 
So if those are in the picture, we triage that risk. If someone, because we're an outpatient program, if you've got a history of having seizures coming off of alcohol, I'll help you get to a hospital where you can be safely managed to come off the alcohol, but I'm not going to do that as an outpatient. So we triage the risk. For those who are triaged and are appropriate for outpatient programs, then we just kind of go into the history. Uh, Again, extremely rare. Not only is it extremely rare to have one substance, it's also extremely rare to only have addiction. Most of them have other physical health problems. 90% have a mental health, you know, another mental health disorder. So we kind of, again, we triage those risks, see if they're still appropriate for care, and then we dive in. Our program uses the MAT that Beth Macy talks about, the medication-assisted treatment. We use buprenorphine, which is the suboxone that she talks about, as well as the naltrexone or Vivitrol that she also uses in the book. The other, the third drug approved for opioid addiction is methadone, but we're not, you have to be a specially federally licensed methadone clinic, and we're not, so we don't offer that, but we can offer the other medicines, and then we offer them the medication therapy as well as pretty aggressive and robust behavioral therapy. Because even though I'm the medicine guy, I tell all the patients I'm the least important person in their long-term recovery because it's what they're going to do up here. The medicine's great because it allows someone to stop using the street drugs and to come to treatment and not be in withdrawal or not be high when they come to treatment. It keeps them steady. So then they can start to address what for most are some pretty significant either past traumas, childhood trauma, all forms of abuse. We have never seen abuse in a population like we do in the addiction population. But being out of medicine and being stable allows them to start working on those things. And then hopefully someday they'll come off their medicine and stay with us and continue to be in therapy and be sober. But that can take years. You were talking about the different medications, and just my little bit of reading indicates that there are great opposition to continuing those medications, and I just wonder if you could speak a little more about that. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Beth said it best in her book when she talked about there's this, and I'm paraphrasing, but the intersection of legal systems and drug courts that are staunchly prohibit the use of medications to patients who will go to an AA or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and be shunned by their peers because, well, if you're on a medicine, you're not clean, so you can't be here, to the public health officials who support the use of it based on the evidence that we know MAT works and keeps people alive. It's that sort of entrenched belief system on the parts of the, the players who could actually affect change but those opposing views are so deeply entrenched in some of these organizations that, in her mind, she called that the greatest barrier to reducing and affecting the overdose death rate. And we see that every day. There are plenty of treatment programs, rehabs, that kind of classic 28-day programs here in this area that don't allow MAT. Despite all the evidence, the, the medical literature that supports its use, they just don't allow it because they don't believe in it. I don't, I don't get that. I'm sure they have their reasons, but I have a couple of peer specialists on my staff, two ladies who are in recovery themselves. They know every NA meeting in town. So we go through that list with our patients and say, don't go to this one, because they're not going to be nice to you. 
they have the attitude that if you're on a medication for a chronic disease that works, then well, you can't be here. You have to be totally, totally clean to be here. So we'll point out the things that, you know, where they can get good support when using their medications. I don't want to paint the picture that it's all anti-MAT. There are some programs now here that are very open to using it and use it themselves. We're finding a lot more acceptance in the community. One of the biggest barriers, believe it or not, has been hospitals. Our own hospital system in this area, particularly emergency rooms. Because what a better opportunity to engage somebody who's just come in from an overdose and been resuscitated. You might have that, what she called the liminal period, that little tiny window when something bad happened, they might be willing to consider treatment. Start it in the ER. They're you know, a captive audience. You've got an opportunity to engage, but most providers in emergency medicine don't want to do it. And again, for whatever reason, culturally, they haven't done it. We're now seeing buy-in on the part of our ERs. UT itself has now entered into an agreement with Helen Ross McNabb to put staff in the ER. And Cherokee has a peer navigator who roams the ERs in Knox and Blount County and is on call. So if they get somebody who comes in, she will go there, talk to the patient, help them navigate the treatment setting, and get into treatment. So we're, we're getting a lot more acceptance, but there are still some very entrenched views that I agree with Beth are very prohibitive to progress in my mind. I hope this was a useful discussion for folks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.